Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We're at the beginning of a new golden age for democracy. That is the premise for today's conversation. I'm Azim Azar. Welcome to the Exponentially podcast. Democracy is having a popularity crisis. Recent research found that the young are more disaffected with it than at any point in the last 50 years. Polarisation is a common problem. The basic questions of state, economic growth, and fairness seem out of reach. And new challenges, technology, climate change, and social division loom. What if we could engage people in new ways and have them deliberate over the toughest political issues? Could this put democracy back on track? I've come to New York to discuss these questions with an expert on the subject, Professor Hélène Londemore. Democracy is having quite a tough time right now, isn't it? We've had trust in government in the US is its lowest ever in history. Around 40% of Americans think that the 2020 election was rigged. And of course, there was January the 6th. These are all signs of quite deep-rooted problems, aren't they? Yes, they are. It's all around the world, actually. I think that democracies are in trouble. Two-thirds of Americans and French and German think their governments are corrupt. This is really worrying. It's been going on for a while, but I feel like the crisis is getting really acute. And, of course, it's beyond the richer Western nations as well. We see in India, the world's biggest democracy by population, taking steps towards authoritarianism. And we look at the traditionally the Middle East's most robust democracy, Israel with people in the streets. Yes, it's probably worse in those regions because you don't have the sort of a long history and the social welfare that helps smooth over some of those difficulties. So I think the crisis is very strong there as well. And the one sort of light in the Middle East was supposed to be Tunisia, but there too, you see a return to authoritarian practices. And set against this, we've got the new challenges of technology. We know that over the past 20 years, technology has created a small number of winners and lots of losers, whether it's technology in the form of globalization, whether it's technology in the form of the change in economies. And now we've got artificial intelligence looming through the friendly face of ChatGPT and others threatening to, to flood our media and social media environment with fake material, material that we can't tell apart from things that are true. So that, again, appears to be another force that we're going to have to contend with. This is all looks to me like it's quite bad news. Well, to me, these technologies are, as you, you know, forces of nature, as you said, they are flooding our systems. But precisely, it's a responsibility of our socioeconomic political systems to channel those things and to protect us from them. And I think that's what's feeling the most, actually, at the moment. Now, of course, I'm actually quite optimistic about some of the prospects for democracy, which is why I've asked for us to have this conversation. One issue is that 
Many people think of democracy as putting a tick in a box on a piece of paper every four or five or sometimes seven years. But there are many other ways of understanding what democracy is, what it might mean, and how citizens might show their democratic intent. So take us through some of those options. Democracy is in crisis, but I think it's also ripe for a revolution, a change in the way we practice it and we conceptualize it. And I think there are a lot of signs that point to possibly brighter future mm -hmm. that involves citizens and tap their collective wisdom and respect them in their dignity as not just voters, but as full-on members of the community who have a lot of things to say and contribute. A lot of those democratic innovations are taking place in Europe at the moment, right. but there are signs everywhere. In fact, the OECD has documented close to 600 deliberative mini-publics around the world, um, so it's catching on. Some of the new innovations bring back a sense of dignity, respect, capability, capacity to the individual citizen, and they say, you actually do have the faculties to participate in the decision-making that otherwise takes place in the smoke-filled back room of a party headquarters. These are things that you have called mini-publics. What is a mini-public and, and what are the different sort of subtypes of mini-public? So a mini-public is, as the name indicates, a sort of a miniature version of the larger public that you select on the basis of random selection through civic lotteries. Say, so what you mean by that? A civic lottery? A civic lottery. Well, it's a phrase that's been coined in my world to, to try to make it more visual and enticing. So not the lottery that I lose every, or used to No, exactly. You're supposed week. to win yeah. in that right. scenario. So basically, you receive a, an email or you get a, a letter in the mail that says, oh, you've been selected to join this citizen's jury or the citizen's assembly or this deliberative poll where you're going to meet other people just like you, selected at random from the entire population, to deliberate about issues of interest. It could be healthcare, it could be immigration, it could be end-of-life issues, it could be infrastructures, economic policy, anything. And then at the end, the group writes up a set of recommendations that are supposed to be transmitted to the government. So we take a random selection of the population, the taller and the less tall, the more sporty, the less sporty, the more interested in politics, the less interested in politics, the men, the women, the young, the old, the working, the not working, this random selection that represents the nation. And we give them a really difficult question. You talked about end of life or healthcare that politicians haven't been able to solve. And you put them in the room and you hope that at the end of that process, they come up with recommendations that are better than would otherwise have come through a, the traditional political process, right? I mean, it sounds quite ambitious, dare I say it. Yeah, I suppose it sounds crazy to some people, but actually it works. So the Citizens' Assemblies in Ireland in 2012 and 2016, they were respectively on marriage equality and abortion. Contentious issue in a Catholic country like Ireland, where they had actually made it a crime. So they had a, a sample of 99 randomly selected citizens who deliberated over the course of several months. And at the end, they recommended that abortion be decriminalized. And that went to Parliament. And Parliament, which had been incapable of coming up with that kind of conclusion over decades, put that proposal to a referendum. And two-thirds of the Irish voting population approved of that change. So it really unblocked a clog in the political system yes. that had sat there for decades. When I was reading about the Irish Citizens' Assembly on abortion, I was really fascinated by one part of the research. And it suggested that the discussions amongst these participants were much more dignified and were better able to deal with 
difficult questions, then the nature of the discussion that had happened within parliamentary committees within the Irish Parliament, that those would be filled with showboating and inflammatory talk and would steer away from harder questions. And there seemed to be some evidence that was the case. Just looking at that in general, is that your experience? Absolutely, it's my experience. And I think the evidence shows that's always the case. In Parliament, people grandstand and fight and debate in this extremely adversarial manner. In citizens' assemblies, they actually deliberate. They engage in a sort of respectful exchange of arguments and views with people who disagree with them, but they take them seriously and they listen carefully. And I think the reason is structural. Like People who come in, into parliament come in with a mandate or at least some pre-commitments and an allegiance to a party. So they come with partisanship as a defining attitude, whereas in citizens' assemblies, you have people who come in as who they are, but no one knows whether they are Republican or Democrat or pro-life or pro-choice. You don't know anything. You just know that they are your peers. So it fosters much more open-mindedness and is much more conducive to listening to each other. And I'm quite curious about the individual's journey in that process. How do they feel? They come in shy and skeptical and vaguely distrustful of the process and they get to know each other and then by the third meeting usually there's a, it's, it's like dating, I always compare it to that because there's a sort of moment where they click and then they gel and they form a collective. It's no longer just an aggregation of people, it's truly a collective united by a common purpose which is very rare in our experience as citizens. When we vote, we don't have that. We have, it's very sort of abstract, this idea of a collective. Right. So they go through that. And then by the end, they usually say, it's been the, the most transformative experience of my life. Now, these citizens' assemblies have a new fan in your home country, which is yes. France. I understand that President Macron has rather fallen for them. Yes, so I think the yellow vest nudged him a little. So These are the populist, popular protests for the last th four or five years in France over initially cost of living issues and now other issues of yes. political representation and so on. Social movements basically triggered this deliberative experiment in the country because in November 2018, it got really bad. And so Macron said, OK, let's talk to each other. So he launched this great national debate. And I was followed by the first sort of nationwide citizens' assembly in my country, France, with a convention on climate justice. And because it was sufficiently successful, it wasn't perfect, but it was sufficiently successful, he convened another one, the one on end-of-life issues that I got to co-govern. I was on the governance committee of that one. And this one was, I dare say, more successful than the first one, I think because for many reasons we were the second to test this process. We had a slightly easier topic, I believe, narrower, less technical in many respects. But emotionally, uh, very, very important and touching so on all sorts of issues connecting to religion, culture, morality, because it was end of life, palliative care, questions of even of euthanasia. I mean, these are difficult questions. So you're right that they were very difficult and particularly emotionally. And so we planned for that actually by having a psychologist on site from day one and they were very useful and absolutely needed the whole time. But what I meant by it was slightly easier than climate justice, I think it's it was because the country was ready to move in the direction. I think over 90% of French people are in favor of liberalizing the law and favoring some kind of assisted suicide. And also the economic 
dimension or costs involved in reforming the system, I think are slightly less daunting than on climate. So I think we managed to get the group to work together and make proposals. But my biggest source of pride, if you want, is that we really maintain the trust of the citizens throughout, even though we made mistakes as a, as a government of this assembly. We based it wrong at times. We organized votes that quite didn't quite get to the right question. And, but somehow, because we apologized and we were very transparent and as accountable as we could be, the citizens maintained their trust in us. And so that really helped the process succeed. And, and briefly, what was the final recommendation and how will it get turned into a law? So the final recommendation is, one, invest massively in palliative care and make it so that it's a universal right, more or less, and universally accessible. Second, liberalize the law to allow for forms of assisted dying and forms of euthanasia mm -hmm. under conditions, including, of course, consent. Right. A very, very difficult, controversial issue. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So let's think about where we've got to. We know that democracy is facing this tsunami of threats, but we've also identified that there are ways, citizens, assemblies amongst them, of getting citizens to look at difficult, contentious political issues, coming forward with a consensus, which then traditional political systems can take forward and turn into law. But I'm quite curious about why citizens' assemblies actually work. What is it about them that taps into this collective intelligence and this desire to find a consensus? One, I think, is because they bring together this diverse group of people that in the best case scenario is actually descriptively representative of the larger population. You maximize what I call the cognitive diversity of the group. You bring poor people, you bring minorities, you bring a lot more women, you bring a lot more young people. Mm -hmm. And these perspectives are currently lacking in our parliament. So when you bring that, the richness of perspectives and information that you get is, is much higher. And the other thing is that the process is conducive to deliberation. 
rather than debate or sophistry or antagonism and rhetoric. It's really focused on, okay, we're in it together, we have a problem to solve, how do we solve it? But you so must get show-offs. Oh, you do, of course you do. But the difference is that they're not rewarded for that behavior the way A they politician are, is rewarded, The right. way politicians are rewarded okay. for that. On the contrary, it's very interesting because you do have all the human types. So you have the politician's type in those groups, but it doesn't work. You do have also natural leaders that are actually very much respected. They have an influence. Their voice really carries a lot of weight. They do a lot of the work in the small groups and they are listened to by the other citizens. But that doesn't mean that they're above the others. The only thing that gives you more weight is if you have a better argument or a better information. There are people who are taking you through this yes. process. It's not like the novella Lord of the Flies, right? We're all just left on the island no. <laughs> to figure our own so way So you're right. Through. So a third element is definitely the curation that goes into this, right? So yeah. you have expert facilitators, at the small group level that make sure that all voices are heard, that there are not some dominant voices that, that crush the others, that if there's a conflict, it's resolved peacefully. It is quite interesting because even if this sounds alien, of course, most of these countries have already established the principle that citizens drawn randomly can get together in a process and make judgment because that's what a criminal jury trial is. So we already have some sort of precedent of this process. Absolutely. And so these mini-publics are just taking the concept and putting it on steroids. It's much bigger. For example, citizens' assemblies range between 100 and 350 people. They last much longer. It can be months. They also are solving issues not on the basis of like unanimity, but plurality or majority right. role. And they cover a lot more issues than just the fate of one person. Now, one area that I am really interested in right now, moving at exponential rates, is artificial intelligence. And a major question is, how do we govern artificial intelligence? How do we get it to align to human values? Part of the problem is we don't know what those values are, and we don't know what people want from this technology. How could we use mini-publics to look at that question? That's a really good question. So I think that in the ideal, we'd have a global deliberative process involving all of humanity at different levels of different polities. But we don't organize any sort of formal enforced laws globally. I mean, there are some global agreements, but countries break them willy-nilly. We're organized by nation states fundamentally, but you're saying for this it should be global. Well, given the exponential dimension, I feel like there's an urgency in finally setting up the global infrastructures we need. So why not see the question of AI as like the impulsion to do that? Where would the political legitimacy for that come from? In the case of the Right to Life Citizens' Assembly in, in France, the legitimacy came from the existing legitimate political authorities who said, we want this process to run. Who could give a global citizens' assembly on AI any legitimacy? I believe we'd have to start from the existing institutions, so I guess the UN. It's not ideal, right? So I think we have to work with existing institutions. At least that's my experience with the successful citizens' assemblies at the national level. They always start from a cooperation with existing institutions. So I think we have so, to start there. So one version is a sort of an artificial intelligence version of the COP process that was run by, by the UN. But could you do something else? Could you achieve that legitimacy through a, a multilateral process where you just get enough of the players to, to get together a bit like a snowball? So you get the US and France and the UK and perhaps Brazil and Nigeria 
and India, and then you've got enough momentum, perhaps, to drag a lot of right, others with you. Right, but you know what's going to happen? All these countries are going to pick their best and brightest, and it's going to be yet another Davos of the rich and, and beautiful, making decisions for the rest of us. And I think that, finally, we have a chance to do something a little bit different. We have the technologies, the civic technologies, to involve an Afghan shepherd, a Brazilian seamstress, a Chinese uh, software developer, to talk about issues that will affect all of us. I think it's time to be a bit more ambitious, more democratic, and, and more visionary. And in fact, I think AI could help. For example, I was talking about the role of those facilitators, right? The facilitators, the facilitators in assemblies, assemblies. Who, who build the they're, consensus. They're kind of, yeah, through, they're, right. they're kind of indispensable because it's very hard to synthesize the input, right? The, right. So, and the output. So, could AI help with that? I believe that. I think it would bring down cost. It would perhaps debias actually a lot of what's happening. And as long as humans are still in control at the end and throughout, I think it would allow us to scale the citizens' deliberation that we are able to conduct at the national level to the global level. The bit where you surprised me was when you said, well, we could actually use these technologies to ensure global participation. So that's a new methodology in a way that you're introducing this. So how would you bring the Afghan shepherd in? Would it be through a smartphone or would it be flying him or her to whichever city this is actually going to take place in? Okay, so if we're going to go Why not? <laughs> crazy with this uh, thought experiment, I would bring a thousand of them selected at random from different locations in the world. You bring them into some kind of like really symbolic place for a sufficient amount of time that they can get to know each other, get to understand the process and listen to experts because, of course, experts in all these processes are crucial. Right. But they have to be, I always use that phrase, they have to be on top and not on top. They can't dictate the solution. And the answer should come from the citizens themselves. And I guarantee you this will work. They will produce some kind of set of recommendations and you can replicate that at every level, at the national level, at the regional level, at the city level. But at least you've heard the voice of global citizens on this issue that's going to affect all of us. And the output actually seems to me, for the first time, we would have a global consensus on an issue that is not a set of backroom deals exactly. papered over to look like a consensus, but actually is a real consensus. Yes, it won't be the product of a series of compromises and negotiations, it will be the product of a deliberation. So the way I see it is that, and you start doing them locally, sure. and you get the output, that will form the material that this global assembly can think about, rather than go straight to the global. But these things take time to set up. But the thing that struck me was that Macron, as you told me yesterday, got the grand debates going, not in two years, but in a couple in of months. In two months, yeah. Right, in two months. Yeah. And we got COVID vaccines, not in 11 years, but in 16 months. Exactly. So we've got precedent of getting these things up and running very, very quickly. Exactly. So in addition to going to the moon, let's focus on doing something really bold and ambitious about democracy. So let me recap where we've, we've got to. We recognize now that citizens' assemblies could be a very powerful tool to revive and refresh democratic engagement and tackle some of these issues of polarization and lack of trust we've seen. And we've got an increasing evidence base that they work across the world. What stands in the way of them becoming part of the political rhythm of life, the way that a congressional committee is just nothing out of the ordinary. They happen all the time. 
what's stopping us from doing all this, I think, is partly the usual conflict of interest coming from people who benefit from the status quo, right? But it's also a lack of imagination and attachment to old ideas about legitimacy, accountability, what democracy looks like, an unwillingness to, to try out new things. So one issue being, of course, that if you're a, a politician, a process like this looks like you're giving up power. It is giving up power. In fact, I'll tell you what happened on the first day of the convention on end of life. The president of the National Assembly came to greet this convention. And the president of the National Assembly, is that the equivalent of the Senate leader? Well, it's more the House of Representatives leader. Right. But anyway, but they had felt sidelined by the first convention because they felt like Macron was just trying to connect with citizens without going through parliament. Right. So this time around, she came to, to address the new convention and it was a polite thing to do and we appreciated it. But then the thing she said was, you are not representative of the people. You have a legitimacy, but not that to decide. And she was very angry. She said something like, it's out of the question that randomly selected people replace elected officials. But in fact, I think that's what we should do. We should not necessarily replace them, but there should be a transfer of meaningful power from elected assemblies, which have lost a lot of legitimacy, which are not doing their work, mm -hmm. to those citizens who can actually do the job better. If it takes away some of their power, and it turns out that elected officials remain quite good at certain things, fine. But there needs to be a redistribution of power. And a lot of people are not comfortable with that and will fight tooth and nail to keep things as they are or do what, you know, it's called uh, participation washing, where you pretend to do these things, but you don't empower them. So they are just purely ornamental. So revolutions aside, it sounds like we have to figure out how to get over this impediment of the elites not wanting to give up power. But when you also look at major political change, it often requires a charismatic leader. We can think of Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair in, in the UK. Does a movement like this need a charismatic political leader who can stand up and articulate it? Oh God, I hope not. I think there are other examples like Black Lives Matter, the Yellow Vest. There were no charismatic leaders. It's all movements of the people with an expressed desire to be, as they call it, you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement, leaderful rather than having a cult figure showing the way. I think this focus on individuals as saviors is not good. I think that individuals as saviors is a malaise that actually exists in the technology industry as well. Oh, absolutely. We look at these founders, these entrepreneurs as saviors, and we ignore the role of process and participation and engagement of very large numbers of people. So they're, they're sort of twins, aren't they? I don't know. If you ask engineers, I think they know who made the iPad. And it's not the CEO. Right. The CEO is governing this thing. But I think the cult of the leaders, it's, it comes from our bias towards individuals. Also, the training we give our elites, whether it's in schools that I went to, where it's all about succeeding as an individual achievement, as opposed to a group achievement. It comes from the business schools where we inculcate in students worship of the industry captain. All of that has to change. I think our education system is inculcating the wrong values. Mm. It seems like another thing that we could do to make this system more prevalent is to make these assemblies 
permanent. Some of the ones we've talked about in our discussion are one-offs. They may run for several weeks or months, but they look at single issues and then they disband. And I know that in some places, the city of Brussels in Belgium have established permanent assemblies to look at key issues. It, I think that could be one way of normalizing that, perhaps having even a permanent citizens' assembly on artificial intelligence, for example. Yes, I think that's probably what we should head for next. In fact, I always thought that the main purpose of a randomly selected assembly of a large size should be to be a general agenda setter. Just what was the case in ancient Athens. So in ancient Athens, we always focus on the people's assembly where people were shouting and voting. And, but the agenda setter was actually a body of 500 randomly selected citizens. That's a lot of citizens considering we only need a thousand for a seven and a half billion, eight billion population Earth to look at AI, and Athens needed 500 out of yes. a few tens of thousands of people. Well, I, I, they didn't have probability theory. I don't know how they figured that number, but I'm also in awe of how they run that thing because, as I said, I, I was part of a group that tried to govern an assembly of 186, and it's, it was so difficult. So how do you do it at the scale of 500 or 1,000? We still have to figure out a number of things before we can do this perfectly right, but I think it can be done. I'm an early signals person, I'm a systems person. The things I look at are at the earliest part of their exponential mm. takeoff rate. So I look at these processes and I think actually there is possibly something that is going on here. There is some momentum to help us rethink what this engagement looks like. If this continued, how does it actually reshape the sort of the systems that we have? within our countries. I see it more as diffusing throughout society at large. So you would have, yes, at the national level, the more visible institutions that are staffed with randomly selected citizens, hopefully on a permanent basis. But more importantly, I think, than this focus on the big sort of assemblies, I think at every level, in schools, in hospitals, in firms, you could have randomly selected bodies of citizens integrated into the decision-making process. So to bring in this perspective of the lived-in experience, ordinary wisdom, and I think it would sort of diffuse throughout society and makes for much, much healthier society in general. The premise for our conversation today is that we will, in a few years, look back at this time as a turning point for democracy. Not its death, but the start of a new golden age. Do you think that's possible? I think that's possible. I think there's nothing guaranteed and we have to work really hard to make it happen, but I think it's definitely possible. Helen Londonmore, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Reflecting on my conversation with LN, I'm struck by the increasing amount of evidence there is that deliberative systems work. They reduce polarization, they find commonalities between groups, and they come up with creative solutions to difficult political questions. But they do threaten many existing players within our politics, grandstanding politicians and the parties that support them. Will those groups readily give up their power? I'm not so sure. But as exercises in deliberative democracy have more success, I think they'll gain more credibility and little by little, they might unclog our jammed politics. Thanks for listening to The Exponentially Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review or rating. It really does help others find us. The Exponentially Podcast is presented by me, Azim Azar. The sound designer is Will Horrocks. The research was led by Chloe Ipper and music composed by Emily Green and John Zarconi. 
The show is produced by Frederick Casella, Maria Gavrilov and me, Azim Azar. Special thanks to Sage Bauman, Jeff Grocott and Magnus Henriksen. The executive producers are Andrew Barden, Adam Kamiski, and Kyle Kramer. David Ravella is the managing editor. Exponentially was created by Frederick Casella and is an E to the Pi I plus one limited production in association with Bloomberg LLC. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.